Thank you. I, I couldn't have asked for a better introduction or reintroduction of a series called One because it's a great picture. Our choir is blending of voices into a, a harmonious piece for us. To see that, to experience that, to hear that, it's, it's, it's the perfect picture of our series, of, of what we're about, that we're called into one life together, that we are called to life together. Intentionally, Last week we looked at how one hope guides our way, how it puts us shoulder to shoulder, it gives us a vision, it puts us shoulder to shoulder in the way that we hopefully move towards each other as well. Today we're going to talk about one principle, one principle that gives us the kind of relationships that go farther than we could ever imagine or ask. I want to begin just by asking you if you've heard this quirky little word called the humble brag. Have you heard about this word? Humble brag? Have you heard of that term? It's an oxymoron. Humble brag. Let me give you an example of what a humble brag is. So you see it on social media. Maybe a phenomenon of social media. So somebody gets on and, and updates their status on Facebook or on Twitter. They tweet something like this. Uh, I am such a klutz. That's the humble part. I'm such a klutz. I stepped in gum. But who would leave gum on a... Who would throw gum out on a red carpet? You're not getting it. All right. They must be at the Emmy Awards or somewhere important for them to be walking on a red carpet. So here I am. I'm, I'm, I'm such a klutz, but I'm walking on a red carpet, people. Walking on a red, the humble brag. You know, when when I look at, at 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 social media and I see the way that we're talking to each other, aren't we talking past each other a lot of times? It's a spray. We're putting out our and and. and admittedly, there's sometimes I put things out there and I'm not reading any of what y'all are putting out there. Just just for your information, I'm just putting mine out there. I want you to read mine. <laughs> But I'm not going to take the time to read yours. I mean, but isn't that the, the way that high tech is, is posturing as though it were high touch? It's a wide view of relationships. A mile wide, but an inch deep. We're called, not only called, but we are challenged and empowered to have deep relationships. And there is a key that will jump out, I hope, to you from Ephesians chapter 2. A key, a principle, one principle that enables us to have the richest, deepest, most rewarding, most compelling relationships that human beings are capable of having. On the basis of unconditional love, we're called into life together. So let's look to Ephesians chapter 2 for that one principle to which God has called us. Hear God's word this morning, Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, 
among whom we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one, And has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two. May God add his blessing to the reading of this, his holy word. Let us pray. Oh God, this morning, would you help your word... Come alive in us. Not that we would know more about you, but that we would know ourselves, know you, and walk in your truth. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, I'm not trying to throw social media under the bus. You know, I, I, I think there's a place for it. And there's a place for relationships of utility as well. There's a place for wide relationships. We all know more people than we can truly know deeply. Now, on my way to work every day, on my way to church, I pass between a bunch of gas stations, a whole cluster of them. And it's funny to watch the, the prices change. And you can tell that they're playing off of one another. I almost wonder if there's like someone they hire to look out the window and say, what, what's going on over there? What's the price? You know, it's, it's digital. And so they're constantly changing and lowering it, you know, in competition with each other. And, you know, when I go by, if, if the one across the street is significantly lower than the other one that's convenient, I'm going to inconvenience myself to get the lower price. And some of you, I know, I know somebody who'll drive across town to save a couple of cents per gallon, right? And some of you are sitting here today who will do that. And so, yes, we have, we have relationships that are useful to us. 
And we're useful to other people. And that's okay. But part of the problem when you say that you are liking your friends, but what you really mean is you're clicking on some friend's post who you haven't seen in years and you don't really care about and you really just want them to like you back, right? Like your post back. You know, younger people, there's study after study where the self-esteem of, of our children and of our young adults rises and falls on the popularity of a post. Well, let me ask you. Wouldn't you trade a thousand clicks when you're in deep distress for one phone call from somebody who really knows you, really loves you, and wants to hear what's going on with you? Of course we would. And so the question of the day is, how do we go deep? How do we get that? How do we get the kind of relationships that, were po- that are possible to us. The deep relationships, not just the wide relationships of utility, the useful people in our lives. But how do we achieve an unconditional, the richest kind of relationships, unconditional regard for each other? And the answer is that we get it through unconditional love, God's unconditional love. The answer is that God has given us to us and operated for us a principle of exchange. So let's, let's look at how we get it and how we keep it. How do we get these kinds of relationships and how do we keep them? First, how do we get them? Well, I just told you, God's initiative. The way that we get the deepest kind of relationships, the richest kind of unconditional love, is by God's initiative. That he has exchanged life for life, his perfect life for our flawed lives. He has substituted himself in exchange for us. And immediately, if I'm sitting out there and I'm thinking, God put himself in our place, a perfect God put himself in the place of imperfect people for a punishment... You think, don't don't you think, and and don't we continue to ask the question, why why is that necessary? Why was that necessary, really? And yet, even secular, eastern, western, worldwide, age-to-age, century-after-century philosophers, thinkers have always asked, where do we come from? What is wrong with us, and what do we do about it? Those are the three great questions. Over time, over humankind... Where do we come from? What's wrong with us? And what do we do about it? And the scriptures say that what's wrong with us at the deepest place is that we have made our relationship with God conditioned upon our self-centeredness. And God is saying that's backwards. And so we broke a covenant. We broke fellowship with God. And he said that the punishment of that, the consequences, the natural consequences of that, is death. 
Yeah, there, there's some fancy words for this, expiation and propitiation. These are words that, that get at some nuances of what it means for someone else to take your punishment. To put you to the side and to put God in the place of the consequences that should be yours and mine. And, you know, we've heard this so often. Can we feel it, though? Can you feel it? Can, can, can you get into the place where even viscerally you, you see and you experience? You see, we have to get there in order for us to understand. How do we keep this going? How do we continue to experience that this same kind of, of, of rich regard, unconditional regard for each other? If we're going to get there, we first have to understand where it comes from, and we have to react to it. Now, let me tell you a story that I think will help. It'll help you understand what it really means and why it's really necessary for a perfect God to put himself in your place as a substitute for the propitiation of your sin. That judgment was placed on him so that it would be satisfied, in other words. And it's a story that I've told. I'm, I'm going to tell a story to, to capture the essence of what I'm talking about here when God put himself in our place and why it was necessary. It's a, it's a story that I told uh, maybe a year ago at uh, Wednesday night, but I told a different form of it. And I want to tell it again because it is, it is the best story I've ever found that captures this idea of why it's necessary for payment. And the, the latest version that I've seen of it comes from a, a, you know, a Native American context. Early American uh, tribes that, uh, that populated the United States before uh, it was colonized. There, there's such a richness of stories. One of the stories is that, that this one tribe was uh, facing a famine. And they had a certain amount of food. Each, each family had a certain amount of food. And they were stealing from each other. And the chief of the tribe knew that if this continued, if this kind of behavior continued, they would not make it through the winter. So bringing discipline, he laid down the law and he said, there's to be no more stealing. And if anybody steals, here's the consequence, here's the payment. The chief said the payment will be, you'll be whipped publicly in the middle of the camp. Some weeks went by and someone was caught stealing. And it was the chief's own mother. Turned out that she thought that there were some families that didn't have all they needed. And so she was playing Robin Hood and taking from those who had a lot and giving to those who had a little well, regardless of the motive and regardless of her good intentions, perhaps, she took the law into her own hands. She made herself the law, and now she put the chief, the lawgiver, in a very difficult place between the moral law and the call or the need for grace. Otherwise, the punishment would have to take place on the back of his own Mother. Now, before we continue with the story, let me, let me just say to the side, isn't that where we're often finding ourselves is that in especially a culture that is a permissive culture, we find ourselves that if, if we have any moral standard, we're often being charged with something, that, that we're moralistic. 
And we, we, we stray one way or another, either law or grace. We stray and err, either law or grace. Like I talked about last week, we stray towards purity or towards unity. We fall into the ditch of law without love. Or we fall into the ditch of love without law. And in that ditch, we make relative. Relativism becomes the order of the day rather than any common uniting moral standard. But sometimes we stray over to this side and we become moralistic and we think the, the way to do it is, is to be really, really good. As, as Mark Twain said, uh, he was really good in the worst sense of the word, right? And we take the law upon ourselves like the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son. And we make ourselves, we puff ourselves up using the law. But God, who was rich in mercy while we were yet sinners, put himself in our place. So the rest of the story goes like this. The chief called everybody together and he said, there's going to be justice. You know, because here's the chief. I mean, if he if he gives his his mom a pass, you know, even though she is his mother, you know, you're going to he's going to be diminished in his moral authority. Because it's someone in his own family, he's going to wink at the law. But woe to the chief who would take out a punishment on the back of his own mother. So here he is caught between law and love. So he, he had her brought out uh, and in the center of the camp prepared to be whipped. And at the very last minute, he stepped in between his mother and the lashes and took the punishment on his own back. He was the one who laid down the law. He was the only one who, in substituting himself, could both fulfill the law and also fulfill a merciful act. Justice and mercy coming together. You see this in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament reading that D.T. read earlier in, from Genesis chapter 15, Abram, before he was Abraham, Abram was called before God. God came before Abram and he said, Abram, take these animals and divide them in half as a sacrifice. This in the Old, in, in the Old Testament mirrors how all Near Eastern treaty texts, all Near Eastern treaty texts and Near Eastern treaty, uh, treaties were formed. Covenants were formed. This way, by dividing animals in half. You cut a covenant. And it's, it, it's almost like saying, uh, if, if uh, I break our agreement you know, between two people, you know, cross my heart, hope to die, stick a needle in my eye. It's, it's that kind of sentiment. You're saying, if I break... And they, what they did was they walked between the pieces. So if I were to enter into an agreement with you, we would, we would create that treaty, that covenant. We'd walk between the pieces. And it's as much to say, may we become like them if we break our covenant. But, now can you hear it echoed in... Can you hear what's echoed in Ephesians chapter 2. But God. 
who is rich in mercy, appeared as a smoking pot, a a, a theophany, or the, the, the way that God makes himself present to us, even as he makes himself present to us in the elements on this table. In the form of a smoking pot, he alone passed between the pieces. You know what that means? That means that even if Abram breaks the covenant, it is God who will pay the penalty. So God walked between the pieces. God was crucified between two thieves. That's where it comes from. That's where what comes from? The ability to love unconditionally. It's God's initiative. It's God's... While we were still in the flesh, still gratifying the desires of the flesh, that is, when you see the flesh, sometimes it simply means sinful nature. While we were still living in our sinful nature, God exchanged. It's called the principle of exchange. God Exchange life for life. So that's, that's where it comes from. How do we keep it going? In our relationships, how do we, how do we keep it going? If it was God's initiative that brought us salvation, then we have to understand it's our initiative that builds life together. It doesn't mean that he's not involved in it. It means that he empowers it, but he calls us. To take initiative, even sacrificially. Now, let me put it this way. You say, oh gosh, that sounds great. But you know it's true. And let me, let me prove it to you. What I'm saying is, let me put it this way. We must die a little in order to live bigger. That's the principle of exchange. We must die a little in order to live bigger. What does it look like? You know it's true. You remember in the 80s when uh, the, the big exercise boom with uh, Olivia Newton-John and all the rest of it, and I, I regretted at 9 a.m. saying Olivia Newton-John because I thought, well, that's the end of the sermon. Nobody can do anything but see her with the, you know, the headband and all that. But, but you know, just kind of picture that, that whole boom. And, and, and what was the phrase, the big, the, the big mantra of that age was, no pain, no what? No gain, right? You know it's true. Now imagine you want to go climb Mount Kilimanjaro in, in uh, six months. And you're thinking, and you're looking at the scale or, or you're getting winded just walking up the stairs or whatever it is that indicates you, you're not ready for Mount Kilimanjaro. What happens next? You have to die a little in order to live bigger. You got to wake up tomorrow morning. You gotta die to the desire to sleep in. You gotta die. You gotta die to that chocolate cake, right? You gotta die to that a little to live bigger. We know it's true. You have to give up something in order to gain something. Sometimes in life you have to give something up in order to gain something else. Well, how does it work itself out in relationships? Well, this way. What does it feel like? What does it look like? To die a little to live bigger in relationships? It looks like the five hardest words of the English language. Ready? I'm sorry. 
I was wrong. Aren't those not well? Okay, maybe the hardest words are, I'm sorry, you were right. Maybe that's a little harder. I understand that. But let's just start with this. I'm sorry, I was wrong. Put yourself there in that position. What does it feel like to be there? Terrible, right? I mean, it feels terrible. It feels like a death, does it not? You got to die a little to live bigger. It feels awful. To say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, feels like humiliation. But now, imagine, put yourself in the other position. Put yourself in the receiving position. The last time that someone sat across from you, walked up to you, called you on the phone, and sincerely repented of something, how did that feel? How did you view them? What, with what lens did you view that person? Did you see them as humiliated? I believe, because I've experienced this in my own life, and you've experienced it too. You saw them as courageous, bigger. When you were crossed up, when you were in conflict, the relationship and the person had been diminished. But when that person took the time to die a little, to live bigger, oh, we experience it as a diminishment out of a sense of trust that as Ephesians 2 is saying, it has been completed. We are citizens of the kingdom of God and we're called to live as though we're already in because we are. And so it is out of that sense of a completion on the basis of what God has exchanged for us that we die a little to live bigger. That's what this table is really all about. It's a table of what John Calvin called the magnificent exchange of our sin for his righteousness. For while we were still in our sins, Christ put himself in the place that we belonged. That we may receive the righteousness of God.